I'm sure um, you've all heard somebody, somebody say the words, ah, those were the good old days, weren't they, the good old days? Maybe uh, you've even found uh, yourself saying those words. And whoever uh, it may be who says those words, um, I believe that they are quite often said while, while looking back through those, you know, those rows tinted glasses that everything was, was great and that the good days are, 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 are gone. And yes, there may be some things about the past that, that were better, probably were a lot of things about the past um, that, that were, be, were better, but what we must be careful, and this is part of what the, the author to the Hebrews was writing, what we must be careful of is not dwelling on the past and the things of the past and, 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 and harking back to them. And in essence, this uh, is part of what the letter to the Hebrews is addressing. The recipients of this letter were, in various ways, attempting to, to return to the past, uh, to return to the past and to find understanding and, and guidance for their faith. Uh, what they were doing was they were looking to the, the Old Testament, uh, they were looking to, to Moses and uh, they were looking to the, the books of the law as the foundation of their faith. And you see, they had, uh, they had started well on, the, on, on their Christian journey. They had come to know Christ and accepted him, but they were starting to lose heart and they were starting to lose hope. It's a bit like when you make a, a New Year's resolution. Can you think back? Did you have a New Year's resolution? Um, you make a New Year's resolution, maybe it was to, uh, to exercise more or maybe it was to, um, to eat better. But as the year goes on, we can very easily slip back into our old habits. Maybe it was joining the gym and it's been five and a half months since you were last at the gym. This is, where, this is kind of where the Hebrews are finding themselves. So the author gives them uh, such, some much needed advice and, and support to persevere in their faith. You know, likewise, we need to hear these words. We need to hear these words if we are to persevere in our faith. Because for many believers, their Christian life has become cold. Their Christian life has become distant from, from Christ. And perhaps, perhaps you feel this way this morning. You know, maybe that's how you feel this morning. And you know, that's okay. It's okay, but it doesn't mean that we don't need to address it in some way. And the author is showing us that if we have, if we've begun to give up, as some are prone to do in their faith, what we need to do is fix our eyes on Jesus once more. Jesus needs to become front and center in our lives. And hopefully as we work through this, we will see how we are, we are encouraged to do that this morning. If I said to you, okay, do not think about a white bear. Don't think about it. Don't even begin to think about it. Okay, stop thinking about it. What are you doing? You're thinking about a white bear. And that becomes front and center in our minds. And it's a very simple thing to do. That is what the author to the Hebrews is telling us to do, to think of Christ, that he would be front and center in all things. And what the author is doing is, is showing his, uh, his readers and us that Jesus is greater, that he is superior to Moses. They were looking back to Moses as the foundation and as the, 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 the leader of their faith. 
but we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and that only Jesus can enable us to persevere in the faith. And there are three ways, um, uh, three ways in, 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 uh, in which the author um, brings this to our attention. And in each of those ways and in each of those instances, the basis of his argument is found in a relationship, namely Christ's relationship towards us, his relationship towards Moses, and his relationship towards God. So firstly, what do we learn from Christ's relationship towards, uh, towards man or mankind? In verse 3, um, we read, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Now, before we, before we look specifically at what the author is saying here, I want to ask you a question. And the question surrounds our understanding of what our identity is before God. And the question has three possible options as a response, but only one of them can be true of you and, and I. And the question is, when describing your spiritual standing before God, would you describe yourself as a sinner, a sinner saved by grace, or as a saint? Now, don't worry. I'm, uh, I'm not going to ask for, for a show of hands. But I could probably have a guess and say that the majority of us would answer with either the first or the second option. Would that be fair? Well, the truth is, if you have come to trust in Christ Jesus as your Lord, if you have, if you have come to him for salvation through the repentance and the subsequent forgiveness of your sins, then you can only be one of three people. And the correct answer, the true answer, according to Scripture, is that you are a saint. You are a holy one. You are chosen and set apart. That's what, what holy means, to be holy, to be sanctified, to be chosen and set apart. You're no longer a sinner, nor are you merely a sinner saved by grace. You are a saint, but a saint who continues to sin. But we struggle with this. We struggle to accept that, that we, could, we could ever regard ourselves as, as saints. Because you have this, this idea that it's pious and, and it's, you're, you're so good and you never make any, any, any mistakes. But as children of God, as believers, as those who have been chosen and set apart, we are saints. And we know this to be true because this is how the, the author addresses the church in the opening verse of chapter 3. As he addressed the believers then, he is addressing us now. And further to being saints of God, we share in what the author refers to as a heavenly calling. And the word that is used, the Greek word used is um, epirenius, which refers to anything that is heavenly or celestial. It can refer to the, the heavenly sphere or, 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 or the, the sphere of, of spiritual activities. And the author uses this word on various occasions throughout his letters. Throughout the letter, he refers to the, the heavenly sanctuary. He refers to heavenly things and, and heavenly gifts, to the, the heavenly country, and also to the heavenly Jerusalem. And what he is doing is quite simply contrasting heavenly things, heavenly things, celestial things. He is contrasting them with earthly 
things. He is demonstrating that, that the heavenly refers to what is real, where in contrast, earthly speaks merely of a shadow of what is real. And see, far too often we get the two things confused. We can look at the world around us, we can look at our, our flesh and our blood and our, and our lives, and we can come to the conclusion that this, everything that we see, this is as real as it gets. But actually, it is the heavenly, it is the, the spiritual which is more real than anything that this earthly life offers us. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis talks about this very thing. And he says this, Hell is a state of mind. You never said a truer word. And every state of mind left to itself, every shutting up of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind is in the end hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. For all that can be shaken will be shaken and only the unshakable remains. Now, Lewis is not stating here that hell doesn't exist. What he is trying to present is that hell is, is akin to what our minds perceive it to be. Hell comes about as a result of our decision to remain in rebellion towards God. It is a place where our, our consciousness is dead to the things of God. For many, it is simply a continuation of the life that they are living on earth but much worse. But as Lewis points out for us, heaven is not a state of mind. In fact, what he is saying is that heaven is more real than anything else. And as holy brothers, as saints of God, as those who have been, who have been called to this position from heaven, that place of ultimate reality, we are to fix our thoughts on Jesus who is in that place. But on any given day, uh, I don't know, um, I can only speak for myself. On any given day, our minds are bombarded with a multitude of thoughts and feelings. Sometimes these are good thoughts or feelings. Other times they can be bad, sometimes very bad. We can actually find ourselves being consumed by something that we, we feel is, is outside of our capabilities to fix. And let's face it, there are just some things in our lives that we cannot fix. But there are those times when thoughts begin to, to take our focus off of Jesus. You know, how am I going to, how am I going to pay the bill, that bill at the end of the month? Or will I ever, will I ever find work? What if I don't get the, the results in my GCSEs or A-levels that I'm, that I'm hoping for? What about that situation in, in my workplace or, or my family that is, that is keeping me awake at night or keeping you awake at night? What about all the good things that are happening? Everything seems to be going well. You know, these things too can divert us and divert our thoughts from Jesus. And we begin to perceive the material world as all that really matters. And in those thoughts, which can lead and do lead to anxiety and fear, what we need to do is divert them and fix our thoughts onto Jesus. But then I hear you ask, how do we do that? How do we do it? Well, what we can do, we can do it, we, we, we can do it whenever we fully realize who Jesus is 
and his relationship towards his saints. For the author reminds us that Jesus is the apostle and the high priest whom we confess. Now we need to tease this out. Um, the original, the original uh, recipients uh, who the author was writing to were facing trials. They were facing some form of, of persecution. Exactly what those looked like, we don't know. We cannot be sure. But the author's persistent, and he is continually persistent on enduring in the faith and, and moving forward instead of backwards, is an indication that they were under certain pressures from, from outside and perhaps from within the fellowship. So what happens is they begin to slip away. They slip away from the fellowship, they slip away from their faith, and they slip away from Christ. And their slipping away, as we know, is implied by their returning to Judaism. They return to the law and the prominence of Moses within the Hebrew scriptures. They think, well, if we want to live this Christian life, we must look at the law, look what Moses teaches, and try and live by that standard. And there may be times when, when things are, 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 are tough for you and for I, and we want to return to the old ways. It was like Egypt when they left, when they, they were taken out of slavery. Before long, they, they harked to be back into that place of bondage. And sometimes we want to return to our old ways. We can lose that, that spirit of endurance and focusing on Jesus. We neglect time and prayer. I'll be the first to, to admit this. We neglect, I neglect time and prayer and, and meditation on the scriptures. And just think about, let's just think about Jesus. Jesus was always withdrawing from the crowds. He was withdrawing from the crowds and he was, he was taking himself off to quiet places to spend time with his father. And Jesus needed constant communion and he needed fellowship with his father. And the reason was that he knew, Christ himself knew that he couldn't do life without the help of the father. His identity was found in his relationship towards the Father. Just let me turn very briefly to, to John. To John chapter 5 and to verse 19. And there Christ says, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So let me read that again. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. I was, in the, I was standing in the, in, in the bathroom the other morning. And I was getting ready and I was brushing my teeth and doing all the kind of things you do. And I noticed Flo came up beside me. And she started to mimic everything that I did. So when I got all that nice cream for my, my nice long hair to keep it in place, she says, Daddy, can I have some of that? And she, she would watch what I was doing and then she would do the same thing. And Christ tells us to live as little children. How a child is so dependent upon their father and watches them or their mother and watches them and wants to be like them and do what they do and spend time in their presence. When they, when they leave the room or they feel that they're any distance away from them, they cry and they want to be in the presence of their, their, their parents. And if Christ had to withdraw and spend time with his heavenly Father in prayer and meditation, how much more do you and I? And he longs for us to do that. He longs for us to do that. And Christ is greater than Moses. 
Christ is greater than Moses. And this, this ties in with, uh, into the second relationship that we are considering, that being Jesus' relationship towards Moses. In the Old Testament, Moses fulfilled the role of an apostle. Uh, so he acted as God's representative to the people. Now, Moses was never referred to as an apostle, but in essence, this is what he was. But he did not hold the office of priest. So who, who was the office of priest given to? It was given to his brother, Aaron. And the role of the priest, so the role of Aaron, was to act as the mediator between God and man through the Levitical sacrificial system. They would perform the sacrifices uh, on the Day of Atonement, and they would uh, atone for the sins of the people, and only the priest could do that. No man could be both apostle, the representative of God to the people, and priest at the one time. But as the author clearly demonstrates, Christ is no mere man, for he is indeed the very Son of God. He is apostle and high priest. And as a son of God, he can, uh, he can, he can, hold, uh, he can hold both positions. As one commentator puts it, as the apostle, Jesus Christ represented God to man. And as the priest, he now represents men to God in heaven. And now this is where we see all this beginning to tie together. Christ as the apostle and the high priest brings God to us and in turn presents us before God. And the means by which we are able to fix our thoughts more upon Jesus is through the fellowship into which we have been called. Both the fellowship that which we experience with God and also that we experience with one another. And the image that the author uses here is one of a house. Look again, reading from, from verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 3. It's on the screen if you want to follow along. There we read, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So what we see is, is how Christ relates to Moses as an apostle of God, yet we also see how dramatically different they are as well. Moses, like ourselves, is part of the house, this house which, which Christ has been building, but Jesus is the builder. And within that image, there is a wonderful reminder here of the, of the security of our eternity in Christ. You see, we as his people... As his children, we are safe and we are secure as we are, as we are formed and fashioned into this house which Jesus is building. Our salvation is secure, we are his, and, and nothing, as I explained to the children, nothing can remove us from that. Yet there is a challenge uh, in this to remain faithful to Christ, to collectively fix our thoughts upon Jesus. And this is not a word of warning to the individual. This is a word of, of exhortation for the people of God. We can better fix our thoughts on Jesus as we enter into the fellowship of God's people. And Sunday to Sunday really isn't enough. We need to be engaging with God's people. We need to, to pray together. 
worship together. We need to, to meet and share and, and encourage one another. We need to share our struggles and we need to weep over them together. And by doing so, we learn to fix our thoughts on Jesus. We've looked at Christ's relationship to, to man, his relationship towards Moses, and now finally we see the significance of his relationship towards the Father. And this connection between God the Father and God the Son, and subsequently our connection within, within the Trinity of God, is bound up in Christ's appointment as the high priest. And this is a position which Christ is appointed to. He didn't, he didn't claim this for himself. He didn't say, okay, Father, I would like to be the, the high priest. God appointed it to him. And he fulfilled this role and continues to with utter perfection. And because Christ is perfect, our faith and trusting in him is our act of confession, as the text reminds us. And Christ will keep us until the day when either he returns or calls us home. But some might suggest that from verse 6 of chapter 3, that we are responsible in maintaining our, our future security. There we read, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are, his, we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So some would say to, to stay in the house and to stay in that safety and security, we must do something. Some might even claim that, that self-effort is required to take us to our final destination. And what we must remember is that the context of what is written here is understood in the light of the Old Testament. Here, this is being the leading of God's people by Moses in the wilderness. And we know from Scripture that that ended in disaster. And of all the Israelites over the age of 20, only two survived, Caleb and Joshua. And they were to enter the land of which God was leading his people. And they did so because they had faith in God to believe that he was calling them onwards to another place. They, they trusted in him to deliver them from the, from the desert wanderings. They rejoiced in the, in the confident hope that God would deliver them. And as believers, we will not fail, and get this, we will not fail to reach our destination as we fix our eyes upon our faithful high priest. And you know, so much in this life can, can so easily lure us away from Christ and lure us away from the faith that we profess. And this letter constantly, constantly calls us to persevere, to run, chapter 12, to run with perseverance. There is this relentless call to pilgrimage. And what we must remember is that this is a joy. We should never perceive our call as, as believers as a chore or, or something that we must endure. But it is a joy, a joy with, with unspeakable rewards awaiting us. And as one biblical commentator reminds us, what we learn from this letter is that time and again, its firm truths sound out with ringing certainty. He is able to help. Christ is able to help you. We are his house. We share in Christ. We have a great high priest. This is the ground of our confidence. We do not place our hope in what we do, but what he has done. Believers do not rely on what they are. That would be a religion of merit. 
they base their entire spiritual confidence on what he is. And ultimately, what all this reminds us of is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than your worries, and he's greater than your concerns. Jesus is greater than all your hopes and fears. He is greater than all the money you have in the bank. He is greater than your diagnosis of a terminal illness. He is greater than your depression. He is greater than the struggles that you face. He is greater than your feeble efforts to avoid temptation and sin. He is greater than the issues that you face at work and home. Jesus is greater. But what we try to do is we try to go it alone. We try to fix ourselves on our problems. But Jesus says, I am greater than all these. Allow me to sort them. Allow yourself the freedom and joy of of leaning into me, of trusting in me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, Christ says, will find it. We need to learn to die to self. Let us lose our lives for Jesus' sake so that we might truly live as he desires. Let us pray. Jesus, you are greater. You are greater than than anything we we will face or experience this side of eternity. You have suffered more. You have suffered more than, than, than anyone else. No one will ever come close to the suffering that you have experienced because you bore the weight of humanity's sin in your body. And as the one who suffered most, we also see that you are the one who has produced the most fruit. And therefore we thank you, Lord, that that applies to our lives also. That when we suffer, that it is for our good and that it will produce fruit and that our suffering should lead us to, to lean into you as a, as a child who falls and cuts their knee would come running to their mother or father. May we run to you. And Lord, may we know you more. Help us this day and may it be this day when we begin to cultivate the spiritual disciplines in our lives of of praying and of, of reading your word. But to come, Lord, as your word reminds us, like a little child. And even if that means that we babble, oh, what joy that is to the Father to hear a babbling child dependent upon you. Lord, there is no one like you, no one who can fill us with hope, no one who can give us life, No one who can satisfy us like you satisfy us. You are everything. Lord, help us to die to self so that we may live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to conclude uh, by singing um, the words of that that hymn we sang at, at, at the beginning. No one but you, Lord. No one but you, Lord, can satisfy the longing in my heart. Nothing I do, Lord, can take the place of drawing near to you. Thank you.